Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. This morning, let's focus our hearts in on this incredible text. Let me pray, and then, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at these, these incredible words of the gospel writer Mark. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this incredible scene that was recorded for us in the Gospels. This scene of how Jesus has authority over all demons and all manner of slavery. Lord, we pray that as we read these words and as we think about these words that you would help us that your Holy Spirit would crowd out the distractions and the, uh, just the shallowness that so often consumes us and that you would help us see clearly the authority and the mercy of the only true King and Master, Jesus. I pray this morning that Christians would be encouraged and emboldened I pray, Lord, that people that are not yet followers of Jesus, that by your kindness, Lord, you might give them a heart to believe and ears to hear, and that you might make them alive in Christ Jesus by your Holy Spirit through the power of the good news of what Jesus has done, that you might bring them to life so that they can trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. And Lord, I, I finally I ask that you would help me communicate well these truths. I feel particularly insufficient to do so. And I pray that you'd help me for the sake of these people. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read. In Mark chapter 5, here's three things that I want you to notice. No real points on the screen today or notes for you to take, but I want you to notice three reactions. I want you first to notice as Jesus encounters this scene and these people and this man, I want you to notice first the reaction of the demons. And I want us to learn some things from the reaction of the demons. And secondly, I want you to notice the reaction of the people in the town that were witnesses and observers of this miracle. And then thirdly, I want us to notice the reaction of the man who was freed and who was formerly demon-possessed and is now free and in his right mind. So I want us to notice the reaction of the demons, the reaction of the townspeople, and then the reaction of this man. Let's read in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. What a scene. What a scene. The first thing that I want us to notice is the reaction of this legion of demons, this legion of demons, the word legion meaning a Roman military unit, which was likely about 6,000 demons that had all infested the soul of just this one man. And before we think about some things that we can learn from the reaction of the demons, I think we need to understand and see and comment briefly on the reality of spiritual warfare and demon possession. Now, as modern-day people, I think that we are prone to two errors when it comes to thinking about demons and Satan and evil. In fact, C.S. Lewis, in his very famous book, The Screwtape Letters, I think put it very well when he said that modern man is prone to two errors. He says that we're prone to one error in that sometimes we think too little of demons. We're prone to disbelieve them because, you know, we're modern people. This was just maybe some animistic old-time culture, and they hadn't quite developed like we are and understand certain things, and so we tend to disbelieve them or take them uh, too not serious enough. And then he said that the other error is that sometimes we take them too serious, and we give them at times more authority than they actually have, and we tend to focus on them too much and think that, 
you know, maybe behind every little circumstance or every little evil or every sin, we tend to either think that there's some specific demon there or we tend to put all of the blame for maybe our sin or all difficult circumstances on demons. And that's just as much of an error. What does the Bible tell us about demons? Well, the Bible, I think, clearly affirms that Satan and demons and evil is real. I think we all understand that. But demons aren't just some sort of ambiguous sort of impersonal concept of evil, but they are real specific demons. They're real specific personal characters. In fact, they are fallen angels. This is what, this is what the, uh, the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. He speaks of these demons that were fallen angels, and he says that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains, or some translations say to the pit, but committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And so these, these fallen angels now become this, this, this huge number of demons that are controlled by this head fallen angel Satan. And so they are real, but they are limited in their power. They are, as the Bible says there, they are in chains, limited and still under the control and authority of God. But yet they do exert uh, influence in our world, certainly. In fact, the Bible affirms that, that it's not just sort of the occult and maybe more obviously satanic things that demons and Satan are behind, but even for us, before we come to Christ, exerts a great influence on us. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Listen to this now. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now that doesn't mean that everybody that's not a Christian is demon-possessed, but it does mean that, that there is a very real enemy who is piggybacking and, and looking for opportunities to come in and influence our lives through our own sin and rebellion as we give in to Disobedience and rebellion, certainly the enemy monopolizes upon that and uses that to influence and create uh, evil in our own lives and despair in our own lives and to create a, a culture that, for the most part, this worldly kingdom is run and controlled and has, is much under the influence of Satan and his demons. But it's also important for us to recognize that although demons are real, and powerful, they are limited in their power, and they are a defeated foe. In fact, Romans, at the end of Romans, Paul writes that Jesus will soon crush Satan under your feet. And we read in Second Peter, and we see it again in Jude chapter 6, where it says that these, these demons, former angels, are kept in eternal chains. And so, friends, it's important for us to realize that even though demons are real, and even though Satan is real, and even though they exert great influence in the kingdom of this world, they are under the authority of God. What does that look like in our culture? It may not be as obvious as a man out in the country, you know, on some hilltop and you know, the hillside, which is out there tormented and cutting himself, but certainly evil stands behind much of our culture and behind much of, much of the sin that we wrestle with. 
And so we see the reality of spiritual warfare and demon possession here. But we also see the progressiveness of, of human brokenness and slavery. I want us to just get in this story. Now think about this man that lived in these tombs. There seems to be a progression. It says in verse 3 that he lived among the tombs and that no one could bind him anymore. So it seems like there was a time when they could bind him and it's just he, he was given over more and more to this evil and eventually there got to be this point where they couldn't bind him even with a chain because he had often, in verse 4, been bound with shackles and chains but he would got to this point of control by demons where he would break them apart and now nobody had the strength to subdue him. And we see this progression in his life. And, and let's just not just look at him as a sort of character just to fulfill this story. This is a real person. I mean, how did he get like that? Nobody wakes up one day as a young man in their early 20s and says, you know what? I think in about five years I want to be an absolute freak on the edge of the city ripping my flesh apart, breaking shackles, and scaring people. Nobody wakes up and decides that that's what they're going to do. How did he get like that? Did he, did he give in to some sin that the enemy then used to bring havoc in his life? Was he sinned against in some horrific way that then was this foothold in his life of despair? That What is it? And think about just the brokenness. I mean, we can, in one sense, sort of impersonalize evil, especially in a person, and we just sort of, sort of cast him off. But this is a real person. I think it, he was somebody's son. At one point in his life, he was a six or seven or eight-year-old boy running around playing. And somewhere along his life, sin and evil and a broken world combined together and resulted in this place where he is in utter despair, tormented, and even cutting his own flesh. Friends, we can look at that and we can just sort of cast him off as this strange character to fulfill the story. Or we can even maybe think about our own lives. We may not be as obviously dominated by sin or we may not be possessed by demons like this man was, but in reality, we too can be just as shackled and in a way, in fact, I think in our culture, because we are so oftentimes arrogantly sophisticated, it may actually be more dangerous because we are so adept at concealing our shackles, are we not? I mean, we're masters at covering. Our slavery then becomes normal and accepted and tolerated and then even protected because we want a good public image more than we want freedom. We see the, the terrible, sad despair of the progression of sin and evil in this man. We also see the mission of demons and Satan and evil. It's to stop Jesus. Do you notice this little interchange here? It says that when Jesus came um, to this place, that they, they adjured him. They said, no, no, the, you leave here. W what are you doing here? So, so listen, Jesus is coming to exercise the demons. But before Jesus can even barely get out of the boat, the demons don't run to him because they're coming to be healed. I mean, the, the man really doesn't have any control at this point. He is so far gone to evil that the demons rush up to Jesus, not begging for mercy, 
But they're rushing up to Jesus because they're trying to prevent Jesus from coming to this region because they know very likely what's going to happen. And so they're trying to exercise Jesus. Do you see that? They're trying to push him away before he can kick them out of this man. In fact, and this is interesting, is that they, 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 they I love this word, adjure. I actually had to look it up in the dictionary. I mean, I think I kind of knew what it meant. But this word adjure, they are trying to exert some authority over Jesus and notice that they're actually going to God for that authority. Look at verse 7. These legion of demons cry in verse 7 with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now that's a little ironic. I don't really necessarily have a spiritual point here. But, you know, they're evil. Jesus is God. They're recognizing his power. And they're trying to, like... It's like they're trying to sucker punch Jesus before the referee even, you know, kind of says break and go. And they're trying to pop Jesus in the mouth before he gets a chance to kick them out. But notice the authority that they're appealing to to exercise Jesus. God. <laughs> Do you not also find that ironic? <laughs> I mean, I'm not getting a little buy-in here. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, so, so what? What what do we make of that, friends? Even the demons believe. Believing in God doesn't necessarily mean that you are saved by God or one of God's children. Do Do you see the utter, clear authority of Jesus and of God here? I mean, I find that strangely comforting and ironic and Amusing all at the same time. But we should also note that it should teach us that the mission of Jesus will be opposed. Look, we're not just, you know, we're not playing little lollipop games here and, you know, just wanting everybody to pick flower petals and he loves me, he loves me not. You know, blow little dandelions into the wind and pat each other on the back and you know, speak Christianese to each other. Man, this world is a, bro- it's a broken place, man. And, and it may be more difficult even in our culture than it has been in the past to understand the severity of spiritual warfare in the fight because we're so good at hiding it. But do you realize that there is a spiritual war going on to stop gospel work? Do you realize that? I mean, do you realize that even what we're doing in here is, is opposed fiercely by evil? Do we realize that any sort of gospel work is opposed by evil? Man, and do not be lulled to sleep by the fact that we live in the Bible Belt where there's churches on every street corner. In fact, friends, I think on some level that works against us because, and I say this with every bit of humility because I love the church of Christ. I love the church of our Lord and I love every stripe of it. I, and I realize that this church has issues and problems and, and there's, and I, look, I'm the founding pastor of this church and so all the issues and problems and weaknesses of this church, I, I can't look to the previous guy and say, oh, he jacked it up. I'm the previous guy. All right, so I say this with a whole lot of, a whole lot of humility. But for the most part, friends, the gospel witness in America and in even the South is weak often. Do you see that? 
And, and so, in fact, in fact, this old preacher in Philadelphia at the turn of the century, I can't remember his name. I think it started with a B. Barnhouse, I think was his name. And he said that the devil would be, would be pleased to have all the churches in Philadelphia full on every Sunday, morning and night, Wednesday night, full. He would be pleased to have all the churches in Philadelphia full so long as they don't preach the gospel. And friends, do you see that, how we get lulled to sleep by this sort of cultural, nominal Christianity where pastors get up and read cute little stories or stuff from the book of virtues or whatever, Aesop's fables, friends, when sin needs to be confronted and when the work of Jesus needs to be clearly held out. And and you know that when people and churches try and do that, it will be fiercely opposed. And so we're not playing kitty games here. And when a husband tries to lead his family spiritually, brothers, it will be opposed. Do you see that? So be encouraged in a strange way. Be encouraged if, if life is difficult. If our master and Lord had to endure it, who are we to think that we don't have to go through the same thing? We're not exempt from persecution and trial and struggle. We should rejoice in it because it is, it is evidence that we are suffering like Christ has suffered. The mission of Jesus will be opposed. We also see the heart of Jesus. I mean, he goes to, and we'll pick up on this at the end when we look at the reaction of the man, but do you, do you see how Jesus is just sort of strangely like a magnet for absolutely broken people? And if you are in this room and you consider yourself to be absolutely broken and for the first hour or so of your time with us, your heart is racing and all you can do is think about all the hypocrites sitting around you and you're wondering whether or not you, um, you could exist in a place like this. Well, let me say a couple things to you. Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of hypocrites sitting around you and you're a hypocrite too, so welcome to the merry band of hypocrites. Uh, you're human, so by definition, you're a hypocrite. And I want to say this to you, if that's your mindset, um, that I know these people, and I know my own life, and, and I know that we're all basically train wrecks and pardoned rebels that are in just as much need of God's grace as you are. So, so please, please lay down that, honestly, kind of that tired little line of, oh, well, Christians just think they're all, I, I, know, I realize that may be the case in some places, but look, I, I think pretty much everybody in this room knows that they're a wreck and that they need Jesus. And, and so you're welcome here into this little band of pardoned rebels. And we see the heart of Jesus attracted to people like us. We see the authority of Jesus. 6,000 demons begging Jesus to send him, not to, so they won't go out of this country, but just send them somewhere close. And, and then he grants them permission. Now, um, I've only been in one or two like fights, you know, as a little kid. I had a big brother, so he covered for me a lot. I had a little chatty little mouth. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd get in, but my brother would eventually, it's like, no, you're not going to beat up on my little brother. And then when I was in college, as for PE, we had to take boxing. And, um, you know, I got beat up by this Italian kid from Brooklyn uh, my first bout. I mean, just punished, just punished. And I tell you what, three rounds for three minutes, 
Um, that's exhausting, especially when some little Italian kid named Vito was punching you in the nose all day long. <laughs> but, but I know something from watching fights. I, loved to, I used to love to watch fights and, you know, the boxing. Uh, used to love watching it. We'd go down across the border to Mexico and watch these prize fights down in Mexico, which is a whole experience in and of itself when I was a kid. Uh, but there's a, there's a certain power that it takes to whoop somebody. And you can just like, maybe you've got two heavyweights going at it. Maybe you've got like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, right? And they're going after each other. Sugar Ray Leonard or Tommy Hearns or Marvin Hagler. And Tommy, remember that fight when just these two guys, some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about, but in the early 80s, Hagler and Hearns were these two awesome fighters. And they went toe-to-toe for three rounds. And they were basically equal. And, and, Tom, and, and Marvin Hagler just barely got the, you know, just barely got it ahead of Hagler. And it was like two heavyweights going toe-to-toe and one barely one barely beat the other. But it's a whole nother level of power when you can not only whoop somebody, but make them beg for mercy. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it's like you've met behind the schoolyard, and it wasn't just everybody around the school around you, and you busted up the dude, and then everybody broke you up. You took his dignity from him and had him on the ground begging Please don't stop, master. When you do that to the kid behind the schoolyard and you have him calling you daddy, it is a whole nother level of power. And so do you see that, friends, here? That Jesus isn't just barely hitting the knockout punch in the 15th round. He is dominating these demons. In fact, they're begging him and he grants them permission. He grants them permission to go into the pigs and then over the cliff. Why is this important, friends? Because Jesus, we need to see this as we look at demon possession and evil and great sin. We need to know and take confidence in the fact that Jesus has authority, not just minimal or barely enough authority, but Jesus has supreme authority over all evil, over all demons, over Satan himself. He alone is king and master of everything in this universe. Oh, that is so encouraging. However, we need to understand this truth appropriately and how it works out in our lives. Does it mean that Jesus is going to rescue us from every temporary evil? Does it mean that Jesus is going to cast off everything that plagues us into our proverbial herd of pigs so that we get freedom in the moment, friends? No, I don't think that this story is meant to give us a sort of sure and fast pattern for every time we encounter evil in temporal. It's to give us an overarching confidence in the supreme and eternal sovereignty of Jesus over every evil thing. Because life is not just about these 80 years, but about eternity. Let me read to you Romans chapter 8. Some verses there, and I know I read from this chapter a lot, but this, is, this, this hits it right on. This is what Paul says. What, should, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, so at Jesus, at God's right hand, you have this same Jesus who exercised, who punked 6,000 demons. 
interceding for you. Think about that. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's a rhetorical question. He's about to say no. But do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, can then these things touch us? What he's saying is, will they separate us from God when they come? Do you see the nuance there? So don't interpret the utter and supreme authority of Jesus as a sort of get out of jail free card as if evil will never touch us. That's not the point of this. And he goes on, he says, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, comma, 6,000 demons, or any situation that we may be going through right now, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do you see that? The promise is not that Jesus is now bound to rescue us in every little temporal situation, The promise is, is when we see the authority of Jesus over evil in Mark 5, and then when we read now in Mark 8, the promise is, is that nothing in this world, not even death, can separate you from the love of Christ. So friend, what should this produce in us? Do you you see this? This is, man, this is, this is gold right here. Do you see this for living? Do you see that the point is, is that it causes us to let go of our temporal joys. It causes us to let go of our temporary fears because we know that life is not just about these 80 years. And here's the good news. The demons can kill me, but I need not fear the one that can just kill my body. I fear the one who can not only kill my body, but send my soul to hell. And so I know that Jesus is mine. And I know that nothing, no nothing, no nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. So take my life, cancer. Take my life, untimely accident. Take my life, tragedy, because Jesus is mine forever. Do you see that? Do you see that? Jesus has authority over demons for the sake of his people for eternity. Notice now, I feel like I should almost close it down, but let me just finish this thing up. (laughs) Notice the reaction of the people. The herdsmen fled in verse 14 and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And you would maybe expect him to say, thank you, Jesus. But it says they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Why were they afraid? Why did they ask him to leave? I don't think the text clearly tells us, but I think we we can surmise that it was very likely, I think because of two things. Number one, They saw this supreme authority of Jesus that not only was powerful enough over demons, but was there to take control. And I think we as rebellious people don't like it when we lose control. 
It's one thing for Jesus to just solve our temporal problem, but it's another thing for him to come in and reorient our lives and reorder the universe around us. And secondly, I, see, I think that there's some sort of economic idol here. We don't appreciate this because I don't think we have any pig herders in Crosspoint, although some of you may own some livestock. If you do, I don't know of anybody here that owns 2,000 pigs. But uh, this was a very hefty sum of money. And it probably very drastically affected the economy of these herdsmen and maybe of this town. And maybe some of you are real estate people or maybe you own some property. Think of this like Jesus sending a storm or a tornado or a hurricane to destroy that development. Think about Jesus sending a legion of demons into some economic thing and causing it to be squandered. I think Jesus is putting his finger on an idol of this city and of these people that they, they cared more about possessions than they do about people. One commentator wrote that they cared more about swine than they care about souls. <laughs> Friends, I, I hardly need to elaborate. Where is our treasure? I mean, come on, we live in a culture where... I mean, and, and listen, if, you, if you're like maybe, you know, kind of lower um, income person comparatively in this room, don't, don't rise up right now and say, yeah, Brad's about to get on the rich people. Uh-uh. We're all rich, friends, aren't we? The vast majority of us in this room. If you have a checking account and a refrigerator you're in the top 6% of wealth in the world. I mean, where's our hope? What makes us happy? Could we be okay without our little trinkets? Where are we laying up our treasure? What's really, truly valuable to us? Do we give a sort of lip service to Jesus? Do we want him to solve our problems? Do we just... We want him to kind of make our life okay, but if he puts his finger on stuff that will eventually be dust, does that make us nervous? And do we, do we push him away? And do we maybe like these townspeople inwardly just sort of beg that he wouldn't mess with our stuff? Jesus confronted their idols of control and possessions, and he's still doing that today. And then finally, we see the reaction of this formerly demon-possessed freedman. Let's read again in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him. Notice that word begged. like It shows up five or six times just in these 20 verses. This demon-possessed man begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I think we see in the reaction of this formerly demon-possessed, now freed man, a, a quick and beautiful and poignant and powerful 
picture of all of our salvation. That to some degree or another, we have all been shackled by a foe that we cannot defeat on ourself, by ourselves. And Jesus comes and he defeats that foe. And how does he defeat it for us? He defeats it by laying down his life on the cross and letting his perfect life be consumed as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for his people. Where on the cross, all of our sin and all of the evil that we have done and that we have participated in and all of the shackles that we are bound in now gets put on Jesus. And Jesus on the cross dies and absorbs and, and stands in our place and dies for us and then in victory rises again over death and sin and evil and all of its consequences. And now as the risen, merciful master commands all people everywhere to repent. Friends, that's us. And so we, do, we see here that this, this little scene is a picture of salvation that Jesus has once and for all taken authority over the demons by laying down his life and rising again over their only weapon, which is death, and defeating it on the cross. And do you see that how we, too, like this man, are in shackles in our sin? We are not people that just need help. Friends, don't come to Jesus for mere principles on how to navigate through life better. Come to Jesus because he is our only hope. And we see once this man is saved, we see that he doesn't just sort of then become a mere absorber or consumer of Jesus' mercy. He becomes a proclaimer of Jesus' mercy in a very regular sort of way. He doesn't go on to become one of the 12 apostles. In fact, while the apostles were just minding their own business and Jesus called them, this man actually tries to volunteer. Like he said, I'll be number 13. I'm, I'm in right now. And Jesus says, no. You just go be a regular guy back in the city making much of Jesus in your everyday life. That's most of us. You go back to the cubicle at Tesis. You go back back to the office at Aflac, you go back to the platoon at Fort Benning, and, and you just, just in the regular rhythm of your life, you start telling people about this merciful master. Do you see, do you see this rhythm? Do you see this salvation to mission? Do you see this? And friends, that's so encouraging because the vast majority of us are not called to be the great leaders. We're just called to be people that have been redeemed by Jesus in our time and place. And he went away and proclaimed it in this, this place, the capitalist, how much had Jesus had done for him, him and everyone marveled. Oh, friends, this short 20 verses are a picture of the gospel and its consequences. Do you see that? Are you a Christian right now and are you in shackles or are you... Are you harassed by evil? And do you need a bigger picture of Jesus, the merciful master? Look to him now, friends. Look to him now. Are you not yet a follower of Jesus? And for whatever providence, providential reason of God, you find yourself here right now 
and you are hearing the words of life and your heart is beating and you are wondering whether or not Jesus can do this for you, friends, can I submit to you that whatever you have going on in your life is relatively under the scale of Jesus kicking out 6,000 demons? If he did that, he can, he can do whatever you need him to do. And next week, we're, we're going to look at the second half of Mark chapter 5 where Jesus gives us a picture of his power over life and death when he brings this child back to life. Friends, there's nothing that Jesus cannot do. So, so you, friend, if you're not a believer of Jesus, look, you don't need to do something. You don't need to have some uh, prayer that you need to memorize. You, don't need to, you need to look away from yourself and to Jesus right now to the merciful Master, who alone has the authority to give you life, look to him now and be free. Look to him now and be free. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your table, Lord, I pray for us amazing confidence in the, for the Christians in this room and the authority of our merciful master Jesus. The one who every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess, even every demon in hell will one day confess that Jesus is Lord. And so, so Lord, would you give us the, just the kind mercy of having the confidence to know that there's nothing that can separate us from your mercy and power in our lives. And with that producing us this otherworldly boldness to attack life and attack our sin and attack every troubled situation with eternal confidence. God, would you give us that kind grace? And Father, for my friends in this room that don't know Jesus, Lord, would you take these feeble words of mine and would you, would you the only way that you can do with your beautiful kindness, would you woo them to Jesus, Lord? They don't have to understand everything. Lord, Lord I pray that they would let down perfect understanding and all these little idols that they, that, they're, that they bow down to and Lord, would you give them ears to hear and would they just look to Jesus? Just, just one look is sufficient. He's so beautiful. He's so beautiful that one look, if they will just look away, one look is enough to captivate their hearts. God, would you, would you give them a heart to believe? Would you bring them back to life so that they can look to Jesus? And friend, if that's you right now, I, I'm not asking you to solve some spiritual Rubik's Cube. I'm asking you to look to Jesus. The Jesus of Mark 5 that has authority. I just look to Jesus and trust him and and throw the weight of your life and your hope and your future and your present and your past on him, friends. He alone can bear it. Would you do that, friends? Would you do that now? Lord, would you help us? Would you help us now as we come to this table to see Jesus and all of his authority and all of his mercy? Jesus' name. Amen.